And welcome to this week's edition of Novak Now. I'm Jake Novak here on the Nachum Siegel Network. A number of major stories, as usual, that I like to be able to give a little bit more of an in-depth analysis. Um, well, I guess in-depth isn't the best word. It's more about giving you a, an angle that you're not hearing elsewhere. And, um, and that is, of course, if you have heard of the major stories that I'm going to be bringing up, or I consider to be major stories, and if you haven't, it's okay. As you know, I always provide a bit of a summary. And you can always follow the stories as they develop during the week on my Twitter feed, at JakeJakeNY. And uh, I'm on Facebook as well, Jake Novak, N-O-V-A-K. And I say this not really just to promote myself on social media. Listen, I, I'd love to have everyone follow me. That's fine, too. But it's also just um, a, a way for people to get a little bit more out of this program, uh, to not only see the items as they occur during the week, the news items as they happen, but to hear a number of different perspectives and sort of come prepared um, and and be prepared uh, to hear different voices and different things. You know, we're in a, in a moment right now in all media. I would say news media, but it's really all media now, where not only is there a shrinking number of dominant voices, but a shrinking number of what those voices and what those outlets are actually talking about. The national news media... Right now, I mean, you think about the cable news networks and you think about really the newspapers, they're really only consistently covering one story, and that is all things Trump, all things President Trump. And love or hate President Trump, I just have to think that there's got to be a fatigue with this already. And that includes inserting Trump into stories where, they do, where he doesn't belong. You know, you'll see a story about uh, someone getting involved in a hate crime, someone getting involved in some kind of an accident, people being rude to one another, and, and they decide they're going to make it all about Donald Trump, as if these things didn't happen before him. As if, by the way, violent hate crimes weren't actually shrinking in America. They are, by the way, even though we're hearing more about them. And yes, anti-Semitic crimes are higher. But the consistent insertion of, of Donald Trump into every single story is also quite, quite tiring. And there'll be moments in my programs where I'll mention the president and, and where he fits in and all of this, including the very first story I'm going to talk about today. But there's just a number of times where it's just not fitting. And um, so again, it's just another reason to check out not just my Twitter feed, but some other very, very talented people on Twitter who are, I think, taking the reins of true journalism and promoting them on that platform and on other platforms. You know, if Twitter and Facebook continue with what has been a censorship move by those big tech companies, uh, at some point there may have to be some other platforms that you have to go to to find some real diversified voices, diversified ideas. Um, and uh, if you follow my Twitter feed, you'll see a number of the people who I cite as much as I possibly can. I have a little bit more freedom to do that now. There were times when I really wanted to cite folks like Scott Adams who you may know as the creator of the Dilbert cartoon, but he's also a really brilliant uh, analyst of American news and, and politics and trends. He's very good at those things. And um, I, I would follow his feed, uh, if you aren't already. Um, a true American sort of independent journalist named Mike Cernovich, who has a legal background, but has also served in the, served in the armed forces. Um, and he has a very steady stream of... News on, and I really call it news on his Twitter feed because he really makes an effort every single day, seven days a week, including the weekends, 
where he he pushes out as many stories as possible, including stories that don't fit into stuff that he's always arguing. I mean, he'll he'll put out a story that that or, or a comment that disagrees with him. Um, a very smart investor named Adam Townsend. These are all people who you can find on my Twitter feed if you if you follow me at Jake Jake NY. So I want to get started though on what I think is really the most important story going on right now in the world, and I think it's certainly been getting a decent amount of coverage. I'm not complaining about that. But I want to get into what are the real arguments here with this situation going on with Iran. And what we know, of course, what happened in the last week, the biggest individual story was the attack on the two tankers off the coast of Iran. One was a Japanese-owned oil tanker, and another was a a, a, a chemical tanker, and one was a Norwegian-owned oil tanker. Both of them attacked apparently by mines, mines that are attached to the the craft. So in other words, it isn't like a, a mine that's like floating in the water and the, the ship crashes into it. It's it's a mine that somebody uh, scuba diving, if you want to, for lack of a better word, under underwater diver or divers uh, take that mine in their hand and they attach it to the hull of the ship. And that's apparently what happened to these two ships. I mean, we they had severe damage. There were explosions. Um and Iran is denying that they had anything to do with it. The United States says that they did do it. And they produced video that no one is denying is real, a video of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guards in a small boat removing one of those mines that didn't explode. Uh, and the United States says that's proof that they were trying to remove evidence that still existed because uh, those lipment mines apparently could be connected to Iran very easily like any other weapon. And Iran is just denying that they had anything to do with it, and they're having this back and forth. So the big debate that we're hearing right now, and this is con- and it constantly goes right to this this particular platform, which is, well, the United States wants war. There are people who want war with Iran, and there are people who and and they, these people would you know you can't put anything past them. You know, we are a country that is still in the wake, and so many of us are still wounded by. The argument that went into the Iraq War, the second Iraq War, and, under the George W. Bush administration, and we know that there was a decent amount of evidence or arguments put together for that war in Iraq that turned out to be not a, on such solid ground. The question that no one has ever definitively proved is whether anyone deliberately at the highest levels, I'm talking about people like Colin Powell, the president himself, deliberately uh, knew that the evidence they were using for in the argument for the war on Iraq was untrue, and that's never been proven. You know, as much as I think some of that evidence was was sloppy and disappointing, in that so many people went and died and got injured in those wars on both sides. Uh, I, I have never been been convinced at all that people like Colin Powell or even President George W. Bush didn't believe that evidence at the time. It's not, by the way, a huge excuse on their part. Don't get me wrong. But you can understand why the country is still wounded and feeling a little bit injured by that. And so when they see an attack like this go on in you know, in the waters off of Iran, you're going to get a decent amount of American people who are otherwise reasonable, who are going to strongly believe that the United States did this themselves to try to drum up a war cry against Iran and things like that. And and that's another thing that, of course, there is no evidence for, and I don't believe that for a moment. Do I believe that Iran committed this? Yes, I do. 
And before anyone says, well, you're just believing what Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and what President Trump says, and you're just taking that being spoon-fed to you, really nothing could be further from the truth. Anyone who has been following what Iran has been doing for the last 40 years or so would highly suspect Iran or one of its proxies, whether it's Hezbollah or Houthis. Uh, the Islamic Revolutionary Guards are not an Isla- Iranian proxy. They are directly connected to – they are a part of Iran. It's just the kind of thing that they've been doing. So I have no doubt, no strong doubt that they've done it. If, is, it is it possible 5% chance they had nothing to do with it? Sure. I'm not going to bang the gavel down and say it's 100% true. But yes, I do believe that's the case. And, it's, and I don't need Mike Pompeo or President Trump to tell me that. I don't need to tell them to tell me that Iran, probably about a month or so ago, pressed an international panic button or bat signal to all of their proxies everywhere, all over the world, including their homegrown Islamic Revolutionary Guards, that this was the time to lash out and to accelerate their belligerent activities. The reason being that even though the sanctions on their oil hadn't really weren't super new at that point, they had started to really kick in. The economic crisis in Iran is is growing by the day. And they've decided now, as, by the way, Palestinian terrorists have done many times, and this has been the MO for Islamist militants for a long time, which is what you might think to be counterintuitive. They up their attacks, they get even more belligerent and even more violent in the hopes that they'll actually win more concessions. You would think that the world would be resolute against these kinds of activities, but for those of us who've been following the Arab-Israeli conflict for a long time, we know that Europe is much more likely the European countries are much more likely to give in when things get really, really nasty, as opposed to showing some resolve. We've had a lot of examples of that in recent years that, for example, the, the Madrid bombings that took place a few years after on, on the anniversary of, of 9-11, and Madrid immediately gave in to some Islamist demands back after those, that, those subway bombings there. So that's just one example. So I think what Iran is thinking is they'll create havoc, Throughout the world, more death, more destruction. And Europe, instead of saying, hey, we shouldn't have been getting involved in a deal with these guys in the first place. Let's join the United States and really, really tighten the screws on these sanctions. And maybe even Russia and China will say, like, wow, you know, we've, we've got problems with Islamic terrorism in our countries. Instead of bowing to this, maybe we ought to join in with the United States and stop being the, the, the weak link in worldwide sanctions that they've been for so long. Let's, let's join with them, too. Um. Instead, they, they very often give in. And I think that's Iran's gamble right now. But getting to the other argument that you hear so often that these things happen and immediately the blame, the finger starts going, getting pointed at the United States as if we're the aggressors here and saying, well, you know, this is just an excuse for the United States to try to start a war against Iran. And look, I, I think that's highly offensive. <laughs> the, there, there's... The evidence is is heavily weighted towards Iran having done this. But even if it weren't, this is not something that you have any evidence to show that the United States in this under this administration would want to do. And, and I would include even previous administrations. Again, as much as there's been all kinds of evidence to show that the, the, that the arguments that the Bush administration used for the second Gulf War were, were ended up being not so strong, there's a lot of evidence that it was very compelling at the time. And again, there is no evidence that the Colin Powells and, and President George W. Bush's of the world didn't believe the evidence at the time. If you want to come and show me that there was a deliberate lying to the American public by George W. Bush, and I know you saw on the George Soros-funded 
uh, sites and all that during the you know during the aftermath of the war and even during the war that you know George Bush lied and people died. We we saw that we saw that um, that slogan. I don't think he lied. I think he was. It turned out to be mistaken about a lot of the things. Of course, the, the weapons of mass destruction, which, by the way, the very good chance that some chemical weapons that Saddam Hussein was developing ended up in Syria's hands. But again, even if that isn't the case, there's never been any proof that there was a deliberate lie being presented by George W. Bush that he knew about and Colin Powell. Not to excuse him if it turns out the evidence wasn't strong, but the point is you have to get the you have to get your your your, your accusations straight. And you've heard me quote the comedian Chris Rock before on this program, but it's an important quote. It's one of his old jokes about if you, have a, if you know a guy killed one person, don't go around saying he killed ten people. Because what that does is it, it casts doubt on the facts of the one murder. In other words, if you think that President George W. Bush and Colin Powell were sloppy and somewhat irresponsible in the way they put together their argument for the Iraq War, don't go around and say they deliberately lied and connived from the beginning, because beginning, then I'm not going to believe you about point A, even if you've had some proof for it. It's not going to work. So you have to stick with the facts. And there's one more thing I want to say about this with the Iran story. Uh, understand that this administration, the Trump administration, is trying to really set itself apart for the fir- in a certain way for the first time since pr- pr- Ronald Reagan was president. Now, I've had the opportunity in the course of my 25 years in the news business to meet a number of people who used to work for the Reagan administration. And the thing that really strikes me about them, and it's something that they almost all have in common in that they all talk about this, they, they and the president, the late president, Ronald Reagan, are really, really, really proud of something. And yes, the setting the, setting the wheels in motion for the end of the Cold War, of course, is at the top of that list. But there's a bunch of other things. But the one thing that they always like to talk about is that during these, his eight years as president, the United States never got into a new shooting war or a new conflagration with any foreign country. Uh, there were individual bombings here and there. Some of you might remember the bombing of Libya that was a one-shot deal. There was the invasion of Grenada that took five hours and involved defeating an army of construction workers with, with nail guns. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't much of a, a war. This was, this was an administration, a Republican administration, for the first time in, in many Republican administrations, or any administration, that hadn't gotten us into a new shooting war. And that was very, very important. It's a very, very important accomplishment for the Reagan people. So much so that they really like to lord it over the two Bush administrations that came after them. You know, remember that since Ronald Reagan, and now Donald Trump at the other end of that bookend, there's only been two other Republican presidential administrations. That was the first George Bush and the second George Bush. And they both got us into new wars. And... The Reagan administration people really like to look down their noses at that. They really like to say, you know, Ronald Reagan was truly a man of peace. He didn't get us into any wars where the argument was somewhat iffy. He, he just never did that. Never got us into a new war, a new shooting war. And they're very, very proud of that. And Donald Trump, I don't know if he's deliberately trying to emulate Ronald Reagan here or not. But it is very, very clear that he also wants to be able to say that. He doesn't want to start new wars anywhere, start new attacks other than the cruise missile attack early on in his presidency against Syria when the administration determined that they were responsible for a chemical weapons attack, we haven't seen new stuff along those lines from the Trump administration. And by the way, that isn't just in comparison to the Bush administration. It's also in comparison to the Obama administration. The Obama administration bombed the heck out of Libya for months and months and months and months without congressional approval. There was like a daily bombing over Libya. 
So this administration, and Donald Trump in particular, he really wants to be able to say, hey, I didn't get us into a new war, particularly a new Middle East war. He would like to try to solve things differently. And we can argue uh, – and then, by the way, I'm not saying that as a blanket praise over this administration. There, there are times when you do have to go to war. And, some, and there have been many times in world history where a, a war that got was, – was started by mistake or it got out of hand, for example, World War I, ended up being the justification for delaying a war that needed to happen – and, and dragging things out to the point where things started so late that millions more people died. And, of course, I'm talking about World War II. Europe's reluctance to really stand up to Hitler because of the overzealous nature of Europe just 20 years before during World War I was a big reason why Hitler was able to gather up a lot of strength and become a bigger threat than he should have been. So there's a history of that. So I'm not necessarily saying that it's great that the Trump administration is trying to be so obstinate about not getting us into war. I think for the most part right now, it is a great, a very good thing. And the reason is I, I don't think that the United States or anyone else really needs to get into a major shooting war with Iran. I don't think that that's necessary. I don't even think massive attacks or major attacks on them are, 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 are necessary. What's necessary is very, very simple. The Iranian regime is, very, is hurting very badly simply because of the American-led sanctions against them. And even though there are countries like Russia, China, and to some extent Germany, who are helping Iran skirt some of those sanctions, it doesn't matter. Iran is getting hurt economically. There are a number of companies that don't want to do business with Iran now, just at least while Trump is president, because they know it's just not worth the hassle. Their economy is in deep trouble. And the very simple solution to this, to help us save thousands and maybe even more lives, is not a war. But if we could just get Russia, China, and again, some extent Germany, to back away from Iran just a little bit, if they would stop defending Iran, if they would stop helping them get around whatever sanctions they can still get around, I do think that we will have a collapse of Iran, similar to the, of a collapse of the Soviet regime. And that can happen in a bloodless way. It won't be easy. There'll be a big mess. It's not a question of that. But can we do it without hundreds of thousands of lives being erased? Absolutely. Absolutely. Does Russia and China and Germany have to do all of them have to suddenly decide, hey, America's always right, we hate Iran? No. They just have to say, look, until we can really be convinced that you guys aren't behind all these other attacks that are going on and these tanker attacks, we're going to step back from you also. We're going to stop buying a certain amount of oil from you. We're going to stop allowing cash exchanges into your country to some degree. We're, we're going to sanction you a little bit more than we are now. And I think that that would really have a tremendous effect. I think it would embolden the people within Iran who are trying to overthrow this regime, hopefully peacefully. You know, don't forget, as, as, as violent and horrific a terrorist sponsor and country Iran has been since 1979, the overthrow of the Shah was actually a peaceful event within Iran. Now, I, it was not a war. It was not a civil war that ended up with, with guns. It was just a popular uprising that, that, that took him down, and he left. So there's a history of this in Iran that could easily be emulated. There does not have to be massive bloodshed. But the world has to stop propping up this regime. And the Obama administration propped up this regime by pushing the nuclear deal. I mean, just when, in 2009, when President Obama first took office, just when he took office in 2009, there was a popular uprising beginning among the Iranian people. And the Obama administration helped to snuff it out, not only by not encouraging it and saying, 
encouraging things about it, but by really working hard with the existing regime to give them the legitimacy that they craved at the time and along the way for, to that nuclear deal in 2015. It was what – what a terrible shame that was and, and truly a disgrace for the Obama team. And there's more and more evidence, by the way, coming out that the Obama team started to negotiate with the Iranians even before they took office in 2009. And that would be criminal collusion, by the way, and that would be very, very high, highly, highly troubling. Um, but even if they did wait until they took office, it doesn't matter. They, it, it was a terrible, terrible policy at a time when ho- some kind of peaceful revolution, revolution or resolution could have been reached in Iran. And instead, the Obama administration propped up that regime and gave them a legitimacy that they did not deserve at the time. And it's just such a shame that that's what happened. Now, the Trump administration and some other countries are trying to really, really bolster revolutionary and reformist movements within Iran. And that can really get a good shot in the arm if a little bit more cooperation sprouts up on sanctions. And that's really what the United States should be pushing for over and over again. And let the news media pundits, the so-called people who know what they think they know what they're talking about, say that it's about war. Let people like Ben Rhodes, who was one of President Trump, uh, Obama's advisors, who cannot stop advocating for the Iran deal and cannot stop trying to improve his reputation, which should be in tatters, based on what we know in 2009, what I just talked about. People like Ben Rhodes should be ashamed of themselves. Instead, he wants to talk about how the Iran deal was a great idea and that the Obama administration did all the right things with that and how the, pre- and the Trump administration is doing a horrible thing by getting us out of the Iran deal and by sanctioning this regime. When Ben Rhodes is doing that, he's doing the same thing he did with, when he was with the Obama administration, which is propping up this evil regime in Iran. And the biggest argument that he uses, and it gets the most traction, both when he was with the administration, of course now he's, you know, the Obama administration is no longer, is not longer there. The big, the big line that, that he says it gets the most traction is, well, it's either the deal with Iran to reduce sanctions and get them to slow down their nuclear program, or your only other choice is war, which is just a total falsehood. It's a total falsehood. Don't buy it. I'm urging you not to buy that argument. It's just not true. There are many other options, and of course the best one being is what I just laid out. More sanctions, more cooperation with the sanctions, weaken this regime that is already incredibly weakened. And I'll give you an example of how weakened it is. The so-called supreme leader, I hate using that term, but that's the official term, just so I have to, just for clarity, I'll use the word supreme leader. I hate using it. But the real guy in charge in Iran, the Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, who's like a CEO, a somewhat hands-off CEO, but he is the real leader of the country. The, the presidents that they have come and go, he's the guy who's been running the country since Khomeini died. So he's been the leader of the country for 30 years. And Ali Khamenei, for the first time a couple of weeks ago, started passing the buck publicly, mentioning by name Iran's president, Hassan Rouhani, Iran's foreign minister, Javad Zarif, and basically blaming them for the Iran deal not working out. Now, that's very, very unusual. Historic moment, really, in Iranian history. In that you have a guy like Khamenei blaming these underlings. In other words, he's feeling the pressure, folks. Ali Khamenei is feeling the pressure. Mentioning these underlings is a big deal. If we can just get more compliance and cooperation on the sanctions from some of these countries that who continue to undermine them, if we can stop listening to the Ben Rhodes of the world and understand that, no, we're not looking to bomb Iran or destroy, wipe it off the map. We want that regime to step down. And it can be done peacefully, especially if 
the small amount of sanctions um, skirting that they're getting to do is put to an end. And that's what we should be thinking about and looking at when we see that story. Very, very important. Um, in just a couple of minutes left in this edition of Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network, I want to talk a little bit about this brouhaha that started from our own uh, local friend David Friedman, now the United States Ambassador to Israel, and an interview he gave to the New York Times, which I believe the New York Times deliberately um, mischaracterized and put a deliberately misleading headline on and caused this controversy over the past week. You might remember he did an interview with the New York Times, I believe it was June 8th that it was published, and it was a long interview about what you would expect, the Arab-Israeli uh, conflict about the, uh, the Israeli-Palestinian peace process, all that kind of stuff. And he talked about how it would make sense and it would be understandable if Israel claimed as permanent territory or claimed these territories in the West Bank where they've been for a long time. That would make sense. And the Times deliberately put a headline on there saying that using the word annexation – that Friedman says that the United States would support some kind of annexation that Israel would do in the West Bank. And there was a use of words like unilateral as well. Like, you know, it's just Israel decided they were going to annex some part of the West Bank and the U.S. would be okay with it. Well, first of all, this was a mischaracterization. He never, I mean, folks, he never, David Friedman never used the word annexation in that interview. And yet they put it in a headline. That's highly misleading and highly unethical. And of course, you had a bunch of Palestinian groups and other leftist Israeli groups who got whose heads who you know who had their heads explode over this and got very upset and talked about how Friedman is you know should be fired, he should be tried in the International Criminal Court. I mean, I, I kid you not. Look it all up. They decided because of this this interview that he was all these horrible things. Whether they knew that the Times had mischaracterized them or not, obviously, I don't think it really matters to these people. They're not really involved in the in the in, in the David Friedman fan club anyway. I'm sure they don't like him. I'm sure the Palestinians don't like that a kippah wearing Jew is the U.S. ambassador to Israel. Kippah wearing Jew for the five towns, no less. I'm sure they hate. They can't stand even the thought of him, whether he was misquoted or not. But for those who were misled and are angry because of of, of the misquote and don't understand that that he really didn't say that, let's clarify. And the other thing you need to clarify is that the United States, he actually didn't, even if he had said the word annexation, but he didn't, there's an aspect of what he said that's no change from existing American policy over many, many years. When the UN passed Resolution 242, it was an understanding that the United States, by the way, pressured the rest of the UN to kind of put in there, that Israel would not have to, they did, they, the wording of Resolution 242 does not say that Israel needs to withdraw from all the territories in the West Bank. It's understood that some parts of the West Bank would be retained for defensible borders. And are we saying that if, if David Freeman doesn't say that Israel has to leave, for example, the old city and the, and the Western Wall, that that also is some kind of new change in American policy? Of course it isn't. So this was a very dishonest, misleading, and unnecessary controversy that, that, that created itself over the past week. And it's important that everyone looks at exactly what he said. And once again, the New York Times very irresponsibly and I think unethically turned something into some, something small into something big. It was really – it was a generally pro-Israel commentary from David Freeman. I get that. But he never said the word annexation. He never talked about unilateral moves. And to be honest, he didn't talk about any change in existing American policy from previous administrations, including the Obama administration. So – this is something, again, folks, I've, you've heard me say it so many times on this program. Uh, 
when it comes to the news media, you must search out more than just a few sources. And I urge you again, follow my Twitter feed at JakeJakeNY. I, I hit these issues as much as I possibly can and cite other people who are doing it in an even smarter way than I am. This is a, it's not a spectator sport. News is really a contact sport and you've got to get in it. Mm-hmm. 